Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The model that I go by is do it scared, but do it anyway. And the reason why I say that is the only ingredient you cannot change when it comes to wealth building is time. Every second, every minute, every day that goes by that you don't do anything about your personal finances is, is time that you cannot buy back. And the reason why all these 30-something-year-olds are talking about early retirement is because they had the absolute privilege of investing their 20s. Like the 20s are when you have the most amount of time, least amount of responsibilities. And yeah, you can go crazy like me and work 70 to 90 hours a week. To, to get there. And then the older you get, the more your responsibilities you have, the less time you have. So that's the only thing that I keep in mind is I still got to take advantage of time. And if you're too scared, the number one thing you got to make sure you have before you even invest a dime into the market is having an emergency fund. The riskiest thing during the downturn, as long as you're not retiring, is not your investments falling. It's you losing your job. You're more likely to just need cold hard cash so it lasts you until you get your next job because you're not going to retire off of your 401k right now unless you're retirement age. And so I like to see most people have at least three months of expenses saved in a high yield savings account, or you can even buy an I-bond for all I care. You know, don't put it in the market, have that, and then go into investing. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. 
Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Shung, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. I'm so, so excited. <laughs> let's dive right in. First off, let's start off with an intro. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, everyone. My name is Shang Saavedra. I am known online as Save My Sense. I'm a working mom. I have a toddler boy and another baby boy on the way. And I live with my family right now in New York City, but I'm actually moving out to the West Coast, to Southern California at the end of the summer. So lots of stuff coming up. And I blog about financial independence, retiring in the United States, and investing. First off, congratulations on baby number two and on your big move. That's so exciting. And why I wanted to bring you on the show today is because you are a living example of what it looks like to be financially intentional with your money and using it to design your life, which is what I like to call financial independence. Like that's the whole point, using money to design the life that we want that gives us options to pursue careers, personal lives, big moves, growing a family without the pressure of money being the thing that controls that decision making. So let's go back in time. I want to talk to adolescent, young, maybe teenager. What was the original goal? Was this always part of your plan? Absolutely not. I would say <laughs> teenager Shang going well into mid-20s Shang was all about worldly success, getting as much money as possible by having a fantastic job. I remember when I was a teenager and I started to explore different careers, one of the requirements was this better make me money. And so <laughs> even though as a child, I dreamed of being a piano teacher or an astronaut, I went for the more traditional route of business and I crossed out doctor because I could not deal with the sight of blood. So I was like, <laughs> I'm going to be a businesswoman. And that lasted well into my early 20s where I went for a very high paying career in management consulting. It was not actually until I started a side hustle and I also met my now husband that the idea of being much more intentional about my money for the idea of freedom came into the picture. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's dive in a little bit there because I think a lot of folks that listen to this podcast can resonate with that first generation experience of wanting to make 
your family's sacrifices worth it, wanting to pursue the career or the stability that maybe people in your past lineages just couldn't achieve. Was any of that at play when it came to your original decision making for your career? Oh my gosh. So I'm Chinese American and I had a ton of pressure on my shoulders. I'm the only child of the only son in my family. And my father was brilliant. He tested full ride to essentially the MIT of China. And that's how he was able to leave China with my mom and I to establish ourselves first in Europe and then in the United States. And every day they would be comparing me to all the other Chinese immigrants' children and say, so-and-so won this competition, so-and-so got straight A, so-and-so is going to Harvard. So it was never a question in my mind that my goal was to go to either Harvard or MIT because my dad's an engineer and make a lot of money. Now, my parents never pressured me to provide for them because my dad did have a really good job, but they placed a lot of this idea of saving face. Like you have to really show up and make your family proud with you do career-wise. Yep, I can absolutely relate. So it's so interesting that we can come from completely different cultures, but be in so many ways sharing the very same experience. So thank you for sharing that. Okay, let's talk about that first side hustle, your first introduction to entrepreneurship. So you were working in business, so you saw a lot of, I think, what people traditionally associate with business. But what side hustle did you start with, and where did the passion to start that come from? Yeah, and actually, it's a little bit relatable to what you did. It's wedding photography. And the way that I got into it was literally, I picked up a camera as a teenager and just always took photos. And in college, one of my girlfriends got engaged while we were still in college, which is kind of a big deal. And she said, Sean, can you take some engagement photos from me? And I said, I have no idea what these are. I'm going to Google it and come back to you. I'm like, okay, I think I can try. And I did that. And that kind of over time became a business. And the spark for the business was, I said, I have a marketable skill. And I am by day a busy management consultant telling other companies how to run their businesses. But what the hell do I know? Let's actually apply my research and my analytics to this artistic skill and see if I have what it takes to run a business. And that's how I got started. I love it. It's that curiosity meets realizing that you have something that you could sell, not just to an employer, but to the actual direct consumer. What was your original goal with the side hustle? Were you just exploring a side passion or did you have goals for this money? I had no goals. I just said, I'm going to see if I can run a business, make it profitable and invest the money. I didn't have plans for the money. I already lived quite well on my existing salary. And so the money just sat in my bank account and I would transfer it to a taxable brokerage to invest it by the time I locked in my taxes each year. And I just never imagined that it would explode the way that it did over over the years. So how did it grow? At what point did it get to that you're like, oh my God, this is crazy? <laughs> I think by year three or four, and I'd taken some classes from other photographers. I've been reading a ton of business books and I really put the practices into motion. And mind you, I'm still working 60, 70 hours a week at my day job. I can't be doing the workload of a regular full-time photographer, but I was pulling in at least five figures of profits a year. And that was incredible. And by the time that I exited, and this was 10 years later, people would pay me anywhere from five to $7,000 for a wedding. 
and anywhere from $500 to $1,000 for an engagement photo shoot. That is incredible. Okay, there's so much to dive in there because you know I talk all about side hustles and I think folks would be really interested to find out how do you got those initial first clients after, you know, your girlfriend from college? Yeah, word of mouth first, my friends and friends of friends. Back then, not everyone was getting engaged, so it was more like one-off photo shoots. To get the weddings, I started out at Craigslist. I mean, there were... My first wedding client probably paid me in cash $250. I mean, I was dirt cheap and people loved it. And you just work your way up from there. Yeah. To me, there was no opportunity that I wouldn't turn down at that time because I was in a learning mode. And I was okay charging way below market rate because I'm very honest with my clients saying, dude, I'm just starting out. <laughs> just give me a chance, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that approach. It's just really making sure that you get that experience under your belt so that eventually you do gain those skills, you start improving the way that you do things, and then you can charge a premium once you become an expert. Love that advice. Okay, so you were also investing. So I'm curious, how did you come into the world of investing? Was this something that you learned about as a kid or is this something that you started to dive into as you became an adult? I'm extremely lucky that I've been exposed to investing ever since I was a teenager, starting actually with a typing class in middle school. I distinctly remember this. It's so boring. We just learn how to type on a keyboard. I don't understand why I even took this class. But the typing teacher decided to take a two-week break. And she said, we're not going to go over typing. I'm going to teach you guys about the stock market. I was like, ooh, that's interesting. And this is before Google Finance, before everything was online. So she taught us how to read the stock news on the back of the newspaper where you see all the stocks and the prices printed. She taught us what a stock was and she had us pick one stock that we wanted to quote unquote invest in and follow it over the two weeks time and explain to her why we picked the stock. And at that time I picked Gillette because my argument was that men always need to shave. That was my first stock pick. Now I picked it during a time when Gillette was like, uh, -huh, so ho-hum, it wasn't really great, but over time it's actually not a terrible stock. As I got closer and closer to college, my father started sharing his investing activities with me. I thought I needed to apply for financial aid because we had no money because my parents were so frugal. I seriously thought we were the poorest family in the whole town. And it wasn't until I started filling out the financial application forms, my dad said, oh, stop, actually, I'm going to pay for your college, which was incredible. And he said, not only am I going to pay for your college, I'm going to show you how I did it. And he opened up his brokerage account. He showed me he picked some stocks, some mutual funds, and he explained how those things worked. And with my first college internship that actually paid money, I was able to save enough money to open my own Roth IRA with Charles Schwab. And that's how I got started. And in college, I was constantly recruiting for those, you know, really high paying jobs. So this included investment banking, investment management companies, and management consulting. And when I was exposed to the investment banking side of things, I also attended a lot of speaker events where people came and encouraged us to think about investing. And so that constant learning over time led me to build the knowledge that I have today when it came to investing. I think that's a prime example of how powerful generational wealth from the financial literacy side can be. Your dad gave you information that is priceless at an age where you could maximize the use of those skills. So Parents who are listening, if there's nothing else you can pass on to your kids, the literacy to manage money is probably the best gift you can give them. Yeah. My parents 
walk the walk and talk the talk. Like they lived out this idea of being very intentional, being very frugal with you have, so that over time you slowly build up wealth. It was not a rocket ship to wealth. I mean, my dad scrimped every cent he could save to send me to Harvard. I am so grateful for that opportunity. I know how hard that is, and I want to do him proud. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk more about frugality. So you have talked openly about the fact that you've used maybe what we'd call extreme frugality to reach financial independence, which is one of those things that I think can turn some people off. They're like, I don't want to live like a college student until I'm 35 with like seven roommates living in a basement to save money. What was that initial experience to pursuing financial independence? What did it look like on a day-to-day basis? Like how frugal are we talking? In my early 20s, I would say age 21 to about 23, I wasn't that frugal. I knew to save money, but I lived in a apartment in downtown Boston. So, I mean, that cost some money. And I bought clothes whenever I wanted to. I never turned down a wedding invitation unless I was busy. And I always bought my friends lots of Christmas gifts. I probably had a saving rate before tax of about 30%. So my gross income, I saved about 30 to 33%. It was not until I went to business school and I was facing a decision whether I wanted to go into like startup, startup world where like you really don't make a lot of money working for a startup or if I wanted to do something else in big tech. And knowing how little startups paid, I tried to discipline myself to be more frugal. And also at the same time, I started dating my husband and he floated the idea of never depending on two incomes as a family. And it was such a novel idea. I said, why? He said, look, the entire United States is angled towards people living off of two incomes. It's a two-income household model. And he said, what if we learn to live off of one income for the rest of our lives such that if we ever had bad unemployment, disability, if you want to stay home with your children, we can do it. And it wouldn't be a huge financial impact. And by painting that picture of freedom, of not caring whether you're going to get fired or not, of not being scared of a recession, I was like, that is attractive to me. It's not that I'm frugal because I want to show how cheap I am. It's because that was the goal that we were working towards is to be able to gift time to each other and to our family and friends. And that's when around age 24, 25, I really started pairing back on my discretionary spending. But I would say the biggest saving you can get, and this time I started living in San Francisco, then moving to New York City, was saving on rent. So not the nicest places that we rented. They were all below market. Some of them were sublets. Then we got married. We got a rent-stabilized apartment. Lots of funny things happened in that apartment building. But we saved so much money because of that. And then you add on frugal habits on top. That meant that by the time I was age 31, so extreme frugality went from age 24-ish to age 31, we had saved enough money and invested enough money. And also the stock market was really good at that time too, that according to the 4% rule, we can now do what's called retire early. Then a couple of years later, we had children. And then so the formula changed a little bit, but that was the essence of the extreme frugality. And so you started this around the age of 24. At what point did you reach that? ability to walk away from corporate America if you wanted to. Age 31. 31. Okay. So this is about seven years in the making. Very, very ambitious goal. I think that's amazing to do it in such a short amount of time, but also getting your partner on board, which I think 
I know I've seen a lot of questions in my community, like, how do I get my partner on board? They're just like, what are you talking about? We cannot live off one income. There's no way this is possible. I don't want to live a lifestyle that I feel deprived. What advice do you have, especially for couples to navigate the conversation so that they can get on this page together? Luckily, I'm the person that needed to be convinced because my (laughs) husband was the one who came from a super frugal background. And part of it is because he came from a working class household that at one point was even homeless. So he really knew how to be super frugal. Another advantage that we had that I do want to acknowledge because it's a privilege is that we were both healthy. And a lot of the these early retirement bloggers that you see online, most of them are extremely healthy and often do not have children or other adults that they have to care for other than, than themselves during this extreme frugality time. So I want to acknowledge that because I know not everybody has that. My, my husband first put that idea towards me and we were getting engaged, right? I was like, I thought that it would be fun after marriage and we would enjoy life together. You're telling me that I have to be more frugal? (laughs) I mean, I was not super crazy about it, but the idea that I could buy freedom, that I no longer have to worry about the maturity leave policy of any company that I worked for, that was really enticing to me because I did want to become a mom and I wanted to be present for my children because I had the advantage of my mom staying home with me for 10 years before Mm. she went back into the workforce. And I know that that made such a huge difference in my upbringing. So I put that goal front and center, but it's not immediate. I remember the first time we went shopping for groceries together as a married couple, my husband said, you spend how much on snacks? How much? (laughs) And I'm like, but I always buy snacks. He's like, no, we need to buy meal food and leave the snacks aside. And we argued another time, each of us were hauling probably about 30, 40 pounds of groceries. And we needed to walk about 13 blocks to get home. 13 New York blocks is about 0.6 miles. And it was hot. And I'm like, why can't we get a cab? These groceries are so heavy. And again, you know, there's a lot of whining that happened the first year, a lot of whining, a lot of tears on my end, but keeping that goal front and center And also focusing on ways to be joyful. We enjoy time together. We did a lot of walking dates to Central Park. We celebrated our progress. We're like, wow, hey, like I'm getting better at not buying so many snacks. (laughs) (laughs) And also having great friends who were supportive during the process made it so much easier for me to pare down my expenses. Mm, That's really interesting insight. The fact that you're not always on the same page from day one, which I think is important. It's a journey. The same way that your personal finance journey is a journey. One of the things I think a lot of people struggle with, especially from the first generation experience, is this desire or this need to show your success externally with acquisition of material things, the big house, the car, showing off that you made it. How do you combat that? That is so evident in the Chinese culture, even more so in what we call mainland Chinese culture, which is people who are now born and live in China versus Asian uh, Chinese American culture. But either way, you know, you're expected to have a six-figure job. Then with that six-figure job comes the nice suburban home with the big backyard. You would drive either a Benz or a BMW or a Lexus. I just love Lexuses for some reason. Um, and you would have that perfect life and you would then send your children to Ivy League schools as well, fully paid for. And to me, I realized a lot of it was very external. Whenever I went to galleries of a lot of Asian Americans, I noticed they put a lot of thought into brand name clothes and brand name bags. And everybody's always complimented each other on what they wore. And I was like, 
that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm sorry. Like my happiness should not depend on what I look like and what other people think about it. And for a long time, I actually really tried to walk away from the Chinese American culture. I declared myself, I'm no longer Asian, as if I can change that at all. No, I can't. I took my husband's last name because I didn't want to be known as a Chinese person anymore. I was like, I want to forget about all of that culture. It's so superficial, yada, yada, yada. I mean, there's many good things about my upbringing. I do have a better, healthier relationship to being Asian now. And I think it's by finding my own voice, which partially came from having therapy. I did go to therapy and finding strength within meant that I no longer cared what other people did. And I also didn't judge them for what they did. Like at first I was kind of angry and I was like, oh, why are all Chinese people like this? Why do we always like have to have designer bags? And I'm like, look, they get to enjoy what they do. It makes them happy. It has no bearing on how I feel about myself. And when I got to that stage, I realized, okay, yes, this is the Zen that I needed. I love that. Therapy, y'all, that is the solution for so many things, especially when you're navigating through these spaces, these emotions that are not necessarily familiar, right? Okay, so let's talk about financial independence. Let's do like a quick one-on-one for folks who don't actually know what it means to be financially independent. First, can you give us a definition? Yep. So the most commonly known definition is the 4% rule, which is that 4% of your total net worth is equal to or greater than your annual expenses. And that allows you to be financially independent because 4% is lower than the average growth rate of investments on the market. So your money can still grow and that allows you to start withdrawing the investments to live off of your investments and not have to work anymore. So an example would be like if you had a million dollars of net worth, you could essentially withdraw $40,000 every year for the rest of your life, air quotes, obviously pending inflation and recessions and all these things. But essentially, you might be able to never have to work a full-time job if you kept your expenses in check. Correct. Now, how does one figure out your FIRE number? What should you start with? Knowing your expenses. And this is why people who were without children and very healthy and doing this FIRE journey reach that FIRE number so quickly because their annual expenses are extremely low. It's just them for themselves. So I've seen some people quote unquote fire off of net worths of $500,000, $750,000. It doesn't even have to be a million dollars. But with two children, for example, even though if I don't work, I would be providing the childcare at home, we have more healthcare costs, we have more food costs and transportation, and we need one more bedroom to house these kids. So the costs go up. But as long as you know your annual expenses without working, you can more or less arrive at that number quite quickly. Okay. And so you would take your annual expenses, multiply it by 25 25. is usually the rule of thumb. And then that's where you get your overall fire number. Yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. Okay, so from an investment account standpoint, how should we get started? Like, what are the best accounts to get started if you want to pursue financial independence? Is it retirement accounts like 401ks or IRAs? Is it a brokerage account? Is it a mix? How do you decide? I actually think you should do all three. I call it the trifecta. And there's multiple reasons for that. One, you need tax sheltering. Two, you need to be able to withdraw money penalty-free. And three, you need to be able to pay any applicable taxes. So, the 401ks of the world, which includes 403b, 457b, and TSP, the Thrift Savings Plan, as well as the IRAs of the world, all provide some form of tax advantage, whether when you put in the money in the beginning or when you withdraw money, they give a tax shelter. The taxable brokerage, which is any investing account that you open with a brokerage firm like Fidelity, Vanguard, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, offers no tax benefits because you put in money after tax. If you get dividends, you're taxed at income rates. And then if you withdraw and you have capital gains over a certain amount, then you also pay capital gains taxes. Hmm. That being said, though, the way that I teach early retirement to people is use the trifecta. Put in money into, ideally, your work-sponsored account. So the 401ks first, because it's automated. You never feel it leaving for your paycheck. You don't feel the pain. Then... Over time, put in some money into a taxable brokerage because you need to pay for taxes. Then what happens is you start converting money from your employer-sponsored accounts into what's called a Roth IRA. And at the time of conversion, the amount that you convert, which can be any amount, is considered to be income to the IRS. And so the IRS will tax you. Let's say you convert $50,000 and your tax rate is 25%, then the IRS would be like, yo, you owe me $12,500 on that. Now, you could take the money from that IRA and pay for it, but you'll pay the 10% early withdrawal fee. So it's actually more. But if you had $12,500 set aside in your taxable brokerage, that goes underneath the level for capital gains taxes. So you don't get any capital gains taxes on it. You take out that money, you pay the IRS, you do the conversion. Then the converted Roth IRA, 
the amount you converted at first fifty thousand dollars. After five years, you can now withdraw and not hit the early withdrawal penalty that you would have had before age fifty-five and a half. Yeah, this is why I think folks tend to get overwhelmed with figuring out their whole fire plan because there's a lot of stuff to learn. There's a lot of information. And I feel like there's almost like phases of financial independence where first off, you're starting off with just calculating your fire number. Then you start looking at the accounts. Then you start looking at what you're actually going to invest in the accounts. Then you try to optimize for taxes. So there's a lot to think about. And I think this just reinforces the fact that it's an ongoing journey. If you're confused right now, that means this is an area for you to explore and to dive into and get really curious. So what do you think about the traditional fire definition that people associate with the fire movement, just like getting to that million dollars net worth versus other forms of FI? Things like what I talk about, like cash flow financial independence, where I'm not necessarily, I'm not a millionaire. But I was more concerned about just like replacing my paycheck on a day-to-day basis versus waiting 10, 15 years to get to that million dollars net worth. It's okay for folks to explore the different options or is there one right way to do this? There is no formula to ever follow when it comes to personal finance. Even in coaching, I coach people now who want me to help them forecast whether they'll have enough money to retire, whether they'll get to a fire number. I'm like, it, it so literally depends. And so I never give one kind of cookie cutter answer to anybody. And the knowledge that I'm sharing is from 15 years of dedicated curiosity into personal finance, at least one hour a week. When I first got started, I was tracking my spending to the cent one hour a day at a time because I was just fiddling with Excel and learning that. And then I started learning about, should I be picking stocks or should I be putting my money into index funds? So I would say that was year three to five is when I like really got comfortable with the portfolio allocation that I had. And then years five to now, I'm constantly learning about this tax optimization, which is balancing where your money goes to the IRAs, to the 401ks, or the taxable brokerages. The laws change all the time, which is, I think, what freaks people out the most. It's like, oh, something you learned five years ago now no longer applies. I agree. I have a girlfriend who is a tax lawyer. Every year she gets an updated version of the U.S. tax laws. It's literally a 50-pound book or 50 pounds of books. I don't think you can make it into one book. It's a lot. That's why I would say try to just take it one step at a time. Take the little baby steps first. Save some money, open an account, get a little scared, learn to invest, learn to push that submit button on the investing order and just keep going and know that even the smartest people in the world get it wrong sometimes and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. We're not asking any of y'all to become like Wall Street day traders. We're just asking you to learn the fundamentals of this massive wealth building opportunity that has been used by a lot of different folks from different communities for generations. This is not something new. It might be new to you, but there's a lot of data, history, information to back up the claims that this is one of the best tools that exist for us building wealth. Now, what do you say to folks that right now we're in a period where the market has dropped, inflation is high, there's a lot of uncertainty. How do you navigate the emotions of investing when things don't necessarily feel all that great? Well, I don't feel all that great. And I'm a millionaire, you know? The awful feeling during a downturn in a market never goes away. And so I want to 
acknowledge that and say it's okay to be mad when your money's not going the way that you want. In fact, I now have to do a 180. I had hoped to sell my Manhattan apartment, put that money into the stock market, but because interest rates are so high, no one's buying million dollar Manhattan properties. So I now have to rent it out and I've never been a landlord in this way before. So I'm like, I hate to experiment on such a large property, but okay, we got to do it. And the thing is, the model that I go by is do it scared, but do it anyway. And the reason why I say that is the only ingredient you cannot change when it comes to wealth building is time. Every second, every minute, every day that goes by that you don't do anything about your personal finances is is time that you cannot buy back. And the reason why all these 30-something-year-olds are talking about early retirement is because they had the absolute privilege of investing their 20s. Like the 20s are when you have the most amount of time, least amount of responsibilities. And yeah, you can go crazy like me and work 70 to 90 hours a week to, to get there. And then the older you get, the more responsibilities you have, the less time you have. So that's the only thing that I keep in mind is, yes, the market kind of sucks right now but I still got to take advantage of time. And if you're too scared, the number one thing you got to make sure you have before you even invest a dime into the market is having an emergency fund. The riskiest thing during the downturn, as long as you're not retiring, is not your investments falling. It's you losing your job. You're more likely to just need cold, hard cash to last you until you get your next job because you're not going to retire off of your 401k right now unless you're retirement age. And so I like to see most people have at least three months of expenses saved in a high yield savings account, or you can even buy an I-bond for all I care. You know, don't put it in the market, have that, and then go into investing. Yeah, I love that advice. Okay, so let's talk to the moms because you're also a mom. And I think one of the reasons why we love moms is because they give endlessly, selflessly. But unfortunately, there's a downside to that where a lot of moms will sacrifice their own financial security for their children, for their partners. Why do you think that might not be the best approach? I love to nap. And I would (laughs) hope that all mothers find time to nap because it's the most amazing thing ever to be able to nap. And I actually do make time to nap in my own life. A great piece of advice or parenting advice that I got over time during my first pregnancy was take care of the mom and the mom can then take care of everybody else. So it's actually not selfish. It's actually logical and important to put yourself first and foremost and then the needs of everybody else and not the other way around. Now, that being said, we probably have seen many examples of our own parents or our friends who are parents doing the opposite, where they put everybody else ahead of themselves. And I really hope to live a life that shows that the me first approach is actually the one that benefits my children the most. Along those same lines, I think there's a lot of pressure for first generation kids to support their parents, support extended family. How does that factor into your financial independence journey? I'm so lucky that I don't have to support my own parents because they are well, but there is a very strong need for me and my husband to support my in-laws because they came from working class, never invested, don't have a lot of retirement savings, basically living off of social security, which doesn't cover their costs. So that's one of the reasons why I am continuing to work because we are actively supporting them. And I totally get it. Your parents sacrificed so much, especially ones who are immigrants. They came, they left everything they knew for you to have a better life. So 
you better watch out if you don't do anything to your parents. They're going to come after you with lots of texts like, oh my gosh, you are a failure to the family. That's definitely there. And I would say that there's multiple models that you can pursue to build the support for your family into your financial life. And again, there's, there's no one right model. You figure out what express for you. The model that my hubby and I pursued is we take care of our nest egg and then we take care of everybody else. So we did rapid get to early retirement when I was 31, he's 36, he's five years older. And then any excess income we have after that can now go to parents. The pros to that is that you know you are covered and you never have to worry for yourself. The con is if your parents are very old, they might need money sooner. So the second model that I have is that you kind of split the goal. So you have some money going actively to your parents and some money going actively to your own goals. And you both recognize that if you're starting early, that it's not going to be a ton of money for your parents. And also your own retirement goals are going to go a little bit slower, but your parents will feel the support. The third model that I recommend is a little bit more involvement from the parents in designing what that retirement is supposed to look like. And so what I've often seen in immigrant families is there's more openness to multi-generational living, I think, in other cultures versus American, where the parents are more than happy to, say, live together with their children in exchange for lower rent or even no rent because the children won't charge. And the and your parents would take care of your kids. So the grandparents take care of the kids. So then it's free childcare. So collectively, you lower the costs for everyone. Now, again, I know not everybody has the best relationships with their parents, or maybe you don't want your parents to uh, bring up your children, but try to find something that makes sense and recognize there's going to be pros and cons to every model. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the only thing not to do is to ignore the problem. And then all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> oh, damn, mom and dad or whoever, they're retired and now they can't afford to pay their rent. And we did not talk about this. We didn't plan for it. And now it becomes a really big hardship versus being something that you could be more proactive about planning for. Yeah. And ask your parents what they want their retirement to look like. Because oftentimes we just assume that they want one thing when maybe in reality they want to move or or do something completely different. Or they don't want to raise your kids because they're exhausted from you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about how your journey to financial independence has evolved pre-becoming a parent versus now going to be a parent of not one, but two children. I took a whole year off of maternity leave for my first child. And most of it was not paid. I think I had 16 weeks of pay and then it stopped. And I was testing out this theory of, hey, maybe I no longer want to work and I want to be a stay-at-home mom for the rest of my life. Now, I know a lot of moms are like that and power to you. I realized that it was not, not who I was. And my husband learned it the hard way. He's like, oh, I guess you really want to work. I'm like, yeah, like I feel like my brain is melting with my child. <laughs> I'm sorry, but like I'm losing brain cells every day. But I didn't want to do the same amount of work I did. And by this time, I was a manager, management consultant. I was basically one step away from partner. I was handing clients. I was getting calls at all hours of the day. One time to take my child to or from daycare. One time I was on a project that spanned multiple countries where the only time that everybody could meet was 2 a.m. my local time. So oh I was like, God. how do I do this? So I went to the garage. I was, I was living in California at the time in a sublet and we had a car. So I, I held the Zoom call in my car in the garage. It was super awkward. And I was like, this is not sustainable. My husband said, this is not sustainable. And about eight months ago, I switched to a corporate job with a really nice, big corporate, very stable nine to five hours. I was like, oh my gosh, I've become a corporate cog. What's this going to be like? 
ended up being the best decision ever. I have a great boss, great colleagues, great team. I'm getting paid almost as much as I did when I left consulting. So I was like, I didn't take a pay cut. I got healthcare, and I can be there for my kid when I want to be. And so I encourage mothers to kind of find that whatever balance looks like for you, find it. But I would say that this idea of that there's perfect work-life balance never exists. There's going to be seasons in your life you want to focus more on the home, and there's going to be seasons in your life you want to focus more on your career. Just like go back and forth, kind of do the seesaw thing, and reevaluate every year and ask yourself, is this what I want? Yeah. I love that approach. And I'm glad that you mentioned that balance isn't really a thing. It's not. It's you prioritizing a certain aspect of your life for a given amount of time and figuring out how to make that a reality. The very wise working mom told me when I was in college, she said, Shang, let me just tell you a secret. Work-life balance does not exist. You can't have everything all at once, but you can choose to try to have one of a little bit of thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea because it took the pressure off of me to feel like I needed to be perfect at work and I need to be perfect at home and there's no alternative. And that is not true at all. I would say I'm far from perfect at work, but it allows me to be very chill and not stressed out with another pregnancy because now that I'm over age 35, I'm considered high risk just by age alone. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One other thing that I want to talk about that you are open with on your platform is the connection with mental health and money. Why do you think so many of us don't make the connection and what can we start to do to relearn or remove those limiting blocks that might come from money traumas that we experience in our childhood? I think for years and years, the most popular voices and writers in personal finance took it from the math point of view. And I read all the books. I read Susie Orman. I read Dave Ramsey. I read Robert Kiyosaki and Ramit Sethi. None of them really addressed mental health. And they all give you some kind of canned plan that starts with get rid of debt. And while I did not have debt, I had trouble paying back my expenses during those early years with my husband. And I could not figure out why until I started making all those connections in therapy. Then I started really diving into psychology and neuroscience and the science of how we think and make financial decisions. And this is what I found. Our brain is divided into three parts, the reptilian, the emotional brain, and then the thinking brain called the cortex. Basically, your reptilian brain is meant to protect you and keep you surviving. It keeps your heart beating. It moves you to a place if you're too hot or too cold. It tells you that you're hungry, things like that. Your emotional brain controls your emotions, happy, sad, yada, yada, yada. And then your cortex brain is the brain that really does long-term planning. What do I want to do five years from now? What are the pros and cons of making this decision? Should I put money here or there? The best way this was explained to me is that our brains are like any other organ and it's sick. And when your brain is sick, it cannot function at the cortex level. It cannot function at the highest level, and it shrinks back down to the reptilian level. It's just a survival mode. And in survival mode, we tend to make what are called short-term decisions. We tend to take payday loans. We tend to put everything on credit. We tend to take those payment plans. We want to cash out our 401ks to pay off a debt. All those things are short-term types of behaviors because we're unable to engage that long-term thinking to take a step back, be a little bit more rational, breathe, and be like, wait, 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 wait. That might not be the best idea. And once I made that connection, I was like, whoa, so that means we got to cure our brain. Our organ has to get better. And the quote-unquote cure for mental health is a combination of drugs and talk therapy and maybe some other 
things that are more physical. I mean, it, mental health is very, very difficult to solve, but there's so much stigma against treating your mental health in an Asian culture. If you're diagnosed with mental health, there's something so wrong with you that you'll be cast out of a family. And so we don't talk about it, but I see the connection so clearly now. And I want to encourage people, if you're struggling with making financial decisions and you may have a mental health issue, it's not your fault. It's really not your fault. And I hope that you can go get treated. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you share that message. And thank you for your vulnerability because it's not something that's talked about in so many communities. There's a lot of stigma and it can further isolate and exacerbate those issues. So the support is out there and I encourage anybody listening to find the resource that's going to help you overcome it. Now, I am a big believer in positive mindset, positive thinking, affirmations. Is there anything that you do to stay motivated when things aren't necessarily going well with money? Yeah. I also teach this concept of abundance. And some people are like, is that toxic positivity? Like you're just acting like nothing's wrong in the world. I'm like, no, 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 no. The right way to think about abundance is acknowledging that the world's kind of shitty and that things kind of suck and that you can do everything right. And then a stroke of bad luck comes just like it had done to my in-laws and wiped away half of their life savings when they were younger. But I used this very simple phrase called I get to. Instead of saying I have to, I reframe it as I get to. And it doesn't mean that I'm brushing bad things under the rug. It's simply means that I'm recasting my mind to focus on things that are under my control and ignore the ones that are not. So for example, a lot of people wake up and go, oh, I have to go to work. But if you say, I get to go to work, it acknowledges that you are employed. At the height of pandemic, we had an unemployment rate that jumped up like crazy, like up to 20% in certain populations. So that's a privilege. Another one for me was during my four years of infertility, I was like, um, I have to get these treatments or I have to go through IVF. But it's like, wait, Sean, you get to afford, I was fully covered. You get to afford insurance covered IVF and you get to still try at having a family. And so everything that I just hated, I turned around with this one phrase and it's so freeing because it grounds me and it stops me from going into an anxiety spiral or annoyance spiral at something that went wrong in my life. <laughs> I love the reframe. That is so powerful. And Shang, I really love the holistic approach that you take to discuss everything around financial independence. Your platform is brilliant and all of the information that you share. This is just a small taste of everything that you can learn from Save My Sense. So tell us where we can find you, what you're up to, and how folks can work with you. Thank you so much. So I'm most active on Instagram at Save My Sense. I also have a website, savemysense.com, where I blog. And most people work with me either through private coaching or through courses. Private coaching, anything goes, just anything related to personal finance, and there's different ways to engage with me. And when it comes to courses, I have three main courses. The Save My Retirement Masterclass makes you be able to say, I know the difference between a 401k and an IRA and a taxable brokerage all in three hours. So that's to save my retirement masterclass. I teach a negotiations workshop because I've been hiring and interviewing for many, many years in corporate. And then once a year, I teach five weeks to abundance, which is rewiring your brain to feel more confident and less fear in your life. That's amazing. One last question for you. What is next for you in your financial independence journey? 
I would say I would love to learn more about establishing a nonprofit in the future. There's just so many causes that are near and dear to my health, and I want to be very thoughtful about giving away my own money. And I've just been on autopilot giving to a bunch of charities, but I'd love to be much more intentional about it. And I think that's the true power of money. It's not just when it can design the life that you want and for those that you love, but when you can actually use it as a tool to change the world and make it a better place. So thank you for this amazing conversation, for the work that you do, for being such an important voice in this space, and for encouraging us to dream big and do big things. Thank you, Shanice, for the opportunity to speak to your audience. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.